Zone 3 Podcast. We're back in the studio. We were on the road for a bit. We were. My name is Robert. Yes, this is Reggie. This is Reggie. Yes. And today we're, ga- we're joined by Dr. Baxter. Dr. Baxter, thanks for joining us. Thank yes. you. It's good to be here. Uh, thank you. Uh, you are a neuroscientist, if I have that correct, and you're here to discuss functional MRI. So thank you. Right. Specifically, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, it includes neuroscience. Um, if you want the real breakdown of my degree, it's I'm a clinical psychologist with a specialty in neuropsychology and then a, another specialty in neuroimaging. So Does, does that mean you're an overachiever? <laughs> <laughs> that means she has proud parents. That's right. <laughs> Who don't understand what I do. <laughs> well, obviously, we're very lucky to be joined by you. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Thank um, you. If you would, tell us a little about yourself other than professionally. Like, what do you like to do for fun? You are mentioning mountain biking. Oh, yeah. I just came back from mountain biking. So, you know, I tried to freshen up before I got here. But my, you know, we, we did sort of a short version. But, yeah, we've been picking up mountain biking during the pandemic. So. Oh, nice. We just like to replace it with something nice and and, and dangerous for the. <laughs> so it's better than picking up drinking, pandemic. maybe. Exactly. Well, right. you know, no comment on that. But so, yeah, <laughs> definitely. We're. Uh, Where are you originally from? I'm from Michigan. Okay. Oh, so nice. I went to the University of Michigan for my undergrad, and then I did. I worked in a bunch of different labs and did a lot of different things, and then decided to go back to graduate school after um, kind of living across the country. Moved to. San Francisco, Chicago, then went back to grad school at this um, specialty program uh, in the Chicago Medical School in uh, clinical psychology and figured out that neuropsychology and working on the brain was the coolest thing ever. Isn't it? Yeah, so I got on that. And then um, after that, just to continue on, I uh, went and did an internship, a clinical internship in at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New York City, and then went and did a postdoc at uh, Dartmouth up in um, New Hampshire, Vermont area, and then uh, started in uh, at positions in um, Phoenix. So I've been in Phoenix about 20 years. What was your favorite location? Oh, you know, I so I do a lot of um, mentorship of uh-huh. uh, postdocs in neuropsychology and graduate students, and I have I picked up this this uh, whole philosophy of you have three degrees of freedom. There's location, there's the job, and there's money, right. and you're never going to get through all, all three, three. <laughs> or you shouldn't really strive for all three at once, right? right. So 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 I. I've moved around the country so much, I realized that it just depends. You know, there's great parts of all of them. So I don't know. I'm very content here. It's surprising because I never realized that I would like Phoenix because it wasn't really on my radar. Right. But it's turned out to be great. And plus, I can leave my house and go mountain biking for a long time, (laughs) which is fabulous, you know. And then so I don't have to go anywhere to do fun things, you know. Nice. That sounds fun. You're more active than I am. So I've, I, at the risk of dividing the room, are you Michigan or Michigan State? Oh, like Michigan 
is my school. So okay. go blue. Go, yeah, go I tend to. <laughs> I, tend, I have a funny story. There is somebody I know that is in our community actually who went to University of Michigan, and uh, we are so diehard. Uh, had a tooth problem, went to a dentist who found out he was from Michigan, and the person said, I will put the crown on for free if I can put a little M on your tooth. <laughs> and so they got a free crown because oh, he wow. now has a little Michigan M on his tooth. <laughs> and when people say U of M and they're from Minnesota, I'm like, no, you're not allowed to say that. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Taken. Yeah. yeah. So Michigan. That's <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line. I understand. I've got some friends, and they are diehard Michigan State. Well, you know, they bleed green. Family members, you know, are, are from Michigan State, but you know, I don't even deign to go there because everybody knows right. we're better, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the joke I make: I've never met anybody from Michigan I don't like, and so far that's been true. Um, I've been told by people from Michigan that they exist, <laughs> but I haven't met them. But anyway, so we invited you here because we work with you. Um, we do uh, a lot of functional MRIs yes. at our current facility, and that's where we kind of cross paths. Um, I know as far as the reality of TV and what it portrays, with <laughs> you see how House like... Um, Oh yeah, House. scans patients and <laughs> right. My doctors don't scan patients, but Doctor Baxter scans patients. Yeah. Right. I've seen you scan patients. <laughs> right. You actually do the MRI yourself. Well, I um I was grandfathered in because I've been around for so long that back when I first started it, um there are there are some centers even now that you know depending on your research, uh, you know if you're a engineer and you're doing research, you know, those folks oftentimes can scan. Mm -hmm. So I learned scanning years and years ago. So because I learned it, I kind of got grandfathered in to be able to scan. And so I certainly am not at the technical level of an, um, of an MRI technologist, but for what I need to do and certainly like the safety issues and things like that, right. I can scan, you know, right. I know not to touch the quench button, so, <laughs> you know, things like and that. And I've seen you scan and you, I mean, you know yeah. what you're doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. impressed. Um, well, thank you again for joining us. We're going to kind of let you steer the conversation. There's so many things to cover. I know we want to definitely cover DTIs, tractography, okay. um, yeah. brain mapping, that sort of stuff. I, I know it's one of my biggest questions is like how far has it come? Like what is considered clinical functional oh, studies yeah. versus, you know, research? Okay. Well, so that, that okay, so, so um, functional MRI for a long time was solely research or right. almost solely research. I, I frankly don't know who kind of started transitioning into the, into the clinical realm. I think it might've been, you know, people like Susan Bookheimer who's at UCLA and I know her really well. And she, she's, you know, she was doing it back in the day. They were really, um, but but um, for the most part, it started as a research. And, and in right. the olden days when scanners weren't really good, you know, we were just so happy to get visual field activation. And now, you know, it's pretty, you know, easy to map the visual field easily. Uh, and then if you want to get into more depth, you can go really dive deep into that. 
So it started out as a really nice tool for research, and it continues to be a nice tool for research, and I personally do research. Um, So I change my hat on and off depending on what I'm doing, and I actually scan differently depending on what I'm doing because, um, and I can get into some detail with that. But the thing about uh, the fact that it's basically in research and then we use it clinically has caused me no end of problems in some ways because um, patients and also some physicians get it kind of confused, right? Mm-hmm. So so if I could sort of take a minute to talk about the um, the difference in some broad strokes and what I need to tell people, it, it will kind of help. And I do probably have a slide in here, but I'll just kind of jump in there so um the the so in terms of research it's very very helpful to look at groups of people who have some sort of disorder or 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 even just um, a group of controls that you put under different experiments and decide okay is there a difference between the two groups okay so let's take an example that kind of I come across a bunch. So say you have a bunch of people with um, um, ADD or attention deficit disorder. If you did a Robert. group, <laughs> if, probably three quarters sure. of us in the room, right? right. Uh, but if you, if you did a research study and took a group of people with some defined characteristics of ADD mm-hmm. and then another group and you said, okay, I want to look at attention in those two groups and use a really commonly used a functional MRI task called the NBAC, which is just like you have to kind of see, you see a number or you see a letter and then when the letter's repeated, you press a button or if there's a a break of one, you know, in between, you press the button then that, you know, it's a a working memory task. Mm -hmm. You compare those two groups, you're going to get big differences because people with ADD have some weaknesses in brain function that it's going to look different in the two groups. And so I do research in, in not that particular disorder, but other disorders or, or you know, brain differences, let's say. Right. And I find differences between groups. Well, in any particular person, you can't scan that person with that task and say, oh, I know you have ADD. Because that's not the nature of functional MRI, and I'll show you why uh, okay. that's not the nature. So I oftentimes it used to be it's it's a little less now because I've been in the in the in the uh, general area you know uh, long enough that I think I've I've I think I've talked to enough physicians who would be likely wanting to refer people to me for these diagnostic tests right. but they don't do it anymore. But what you do for um, you can't really tell anything diagnostically from functional MRI at this point in time, um, in my opinion. Um, there's one person who does that um, for specific types of disorders who have created like such a battery of tests that people go through under functional MRI that he can pretty much say, well, you're low on this and okay on this, so you probably have this disorder. But I don't do that, and most people don't do that for clinical purposes. Right. Instead, so, so if somebody, so docs will often call and say, I have this person, and I don't know if they have ADD or it's due to their head injury, do they have brain damage? I can't do anything with that so because I don't diagnose things. So what is clinical functional MRI? Clinical is functional MRI is really you have a, 
uh, a neurosurgeon or a group of people for for folks that are going to go um, have surgery, brain surgery. Right. So neurosurgeons are the biggest uh, referral source, but neurologists will f- refer as well. And what they want to know is, I need to do brain surgery and resect a part of the brain. Can I do this without harming any kind of cognitive functions? Right. And so then there's some basics on that that I'll go through. There, there's caveats on what they, what we actually map. So the idea is, I'm not trying to diagnose what your problem is, but I know what what um, what function of the brain is at risk. And so I map that function of the brain and I try to find out where it is in the brain, not whether you have a problem with it, it's where it is. So not diagnostic, it's really a map of the brain. I just need to map the brain out and that's a really big difference. And you can do that on an individual basis for a number of different brain functions. So if you uh-huh. if you want to go to the slides, I can start showing you some of the specifics so that makes more sense. Oh yeah. For is this sure. good timing for yeah, that? For sure. Okay. So so clinical is for pre-op. Research is for research. So um so if you so oh can I do I have control? Okay. All right. So yeah so just to go over that one more way. So research wise I do a ton of different research, but I do it with group data. And then for clinical, it's in one person and one person only, and I'm trying to map their brain because their brain is the, one, the brain that's going to have surgery. So I have some pictures of those um, in this. Oh, okay. So, so I'll skip this for now because it's... Um, because we've been on a roll. So so what I do for functional MRI, the what the things that you have to think about are what functions do we map and should we map and what are the strengths and weaknesses of a mapping procedure like functional MRI or DTI? What can it tell us about the current function of the patient and 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 then what we would like to do with that? And then um are there limitations? So so mm. I wrote um, a book chapter about why a clinical neuropsychologist is a, a good person to do functional MRI mapping. And it's basically this kind of thing where we're really good at understanding the data limitations based on a, um, a, a, a how are we mapping it, what's the quality control, right. what's the statistical possibility. And then finally, our specialty of clinical neuropsychology is in behavior. So we map or we test out people's behavior all the time. So we're really used to looking at human beings and understanding, like, do they have weaknesses in this area? Like, how am I going to map that? So, so what is the the bulk? So functional MRI is really capitalizing on this this contrast, and this is an endogenous contrast of the brain. So it's unlike when you're injecting people with gadolinium, mm-hmm. which is an exogenous contrast in the brain, the bold signal is an endogenous contrast. So it stands for blood oxygenated level dependent um, signal, okay? So this is, and we use this thing called the T2 star scan. So this is what it looks like really, really, um, with better scanning, we actually see more um, definition. This is kind of an old, old slide, I think, but you get some better definition, but it's simply not as good as a uh, high 
high resolution scan. But it's that way for a reason, and there's two reasons. And so first of all, you have to understand that when someone's just at rest, there's oxygen in their uh, oxygenated um, red blood cells in their in their blood, but there's also deoxygenated ones. So, yeah. so what what happens is if you're called to do something, so like say I want you to tap your finger, mm-hmm. there's only specific parts of the brain that say, oh, you know, your brain's really um, your brain's really uh, efficient, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't get this huge oxygenation in every part of your brain. You just get it in the parts that need it, right? Oh. So when you tap your finger, there's certain parts of the brain that say that start to work harder, and they have a call for oxygenated blood. And so you get this increase in oxygenated blood, okay? In that area. In that area. So like tapping your finger, it's going to be motor cortex amongst a few other places, right. but you're going to get increases in oxygenated blood. So the weird thing about the T2 star signal is if you consider what a red blood cell looks like, it has, a, it has an iron component to it on the heme, right? Mm-hmm. So that, when you're deoxygenated, isn't covered. So guess what that is? A paramagnetic effect. Oh. And it decreases the signal on this T2 star. Got it? Nice, yeah. So, you get, so what happens when you, oxygenate, you have oxygenated blood, it covers up that that um, iron. And so it actually decreases the the effect on the T2 star. So it decreases the paramagnetic effect. So the signal goes up, right? Right. But the signal goes up not because of the uh, oxygenated blood, it's the deoxygenated blood that goes down, right? So the oxygenated blood is in red, the deoxygenated blood is in blue. So you get less blue and so you get actually increased signal. Nice. So it's really like how much deoxygenated blood is in. And, and if you understand that, you'll understand it a lot better than a lot of people who actually do functional MRI for a living. Because <laughs> they kind of think it's, it's related to the increase in oxygenated blood. And thought. it's not. It's not. Wow. The signal does not go up because you're increasing oxygenated blood. It's like you're decreasing this paramagnetic effect wow. from the deoxygenated blood. Wow. Got it? Yeah. All right. So, so I guess the signal can be altered by artifacts then. Right? Oh, totally. Yeah. So scanning people with uh, those, the, the biggest bugaboo I have is those retainers. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, those permanent retainers just drive <laughs> me crazy. Out, right? However, it blows out uh, the signal in places that doesn't really get all the way to the brain. Oh, so you might right. lose a little bit in the brain, but not a lot. But yeah, shunts. Oh, um, yeah. other kinds of, um, you know, we can scan shunts, but you'll get this big artifact right. and, and that's really important. And I'll bring that up. Other things that are artifacts mm-hmm. are things like vascular lesions, right? Right. So AMs. I have to spend a lot of time deciding if we lost signal due to that. Right. Okay. Right. But. So, so this is the signal. So, so the thing that the reason why T2 star works is not only is it very, very sensitive. You guys know that T2 is really sensitive to those paramagnetic effects, right? right. More than T1. Right. But the other thing is, is we can collect these data really fast. So they're not beautiful pictures, but they're collected in two or three seconds. That's what we generally use. You can even do functional MRI at a, at a faster rate, but we generally do two to three seconds. So every two to three seconds, we can get a whole brain. Wow. Right? Yeah. And the slew rate's better on 3T now, so we nice. can do it. We can get a lot more slices. Ooh. 
We so so we can go to a smaller slice thickness, maybe two or three millimeters. Mm-hmm. I usually use three millimeters, but it used to be that people use five millimeters, right? Because oh, they couldn't wow. get through the whole brain, right? Uh, with uh, because the slew rates weren't wanted, yeah, right? the slew rates weren't good enough, and one point five needed the extra power. Okay. So so so. Two to three seconds is much more closer to the way your brain is working mm-hmm. than, you know, PET studies, which I didn't go over. But, you know, they need to collect a whole bunch of radioactivity in order right. to get signal for cognition. Right. Right. EEG is better than this because you can get down to milliseconds. Just actually, I'm glad you brought that up because how many other ways is there to map okay. so, the function of the brain? All right. So here's my... Wonderful slide. I, I'm very, very attached to this slide. So what this slide is is a bunch of different ways to measure functional brain. Um, so, you know, I use that word because uh, functional MRI somehow or another got attached to what I do, which is that bold signal. Mm-hmm. But there's other ways to measure brain function with even MRI, right? SPECT, right? Because oh, yeah. right? sure. that's brain function. So is perfusion. Perfusion, yeah. Yeah. So so for some reason we hit the jackpot and we got the word functional. (laughs) But for some reason, you know, so functional MRI is attached to our word, but all these other things uh, can measure brain function. But let's just stick with the. uh, Well, let me just organize your thoughts. So so when you do research, you really have to be aware of what the limitation of your of your scanning. or your uh, data uh, measurement is. So there's spatial resolution and temporal resolution. And then there's also brain resolution, which kind of maps with spatial resolution. So if you think of somebody getting a lesion in their brain, like somebody has like a stroke or something, Mm -hmm. um, you can get a really gross distribution of where that stroke is and understand how it affects function. But it's pretty, it takes time you know, because you're measuring out people's abilities. And it also is very pretty much, um, you know, high in terms of, you know, you're going to get gross distribution. Right. So the other thing are these like single unit recordings. So we can take epilepsy patients and and put electrodes in to find out where uh, the signal is for for um, uh, the focus of a seizure is. Yeah. Well, people actually do actually get information, too, about function of people's brains. Because that's like an EEG, but it's very, very, it's a single unit EEG. So there's research studies about, you know, what cells, what series, like number of cells fires when people do a task, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, but highly invasive, right? Right. So it's got good spatial and temporal resolution. But uh, anybody here want to get a research study going where they stick (laughs) electrodes in your brain? Probably not, Mm -mm, right? So like you're not going to do that. Mm -mm. So this is a sweet spot for scanning, right? right. So because this, uh, there's what we call it is a good spatial temporal um, uh, um, trade-off, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's got that fourth dimension, it, the invasiveness. So PET, you know, not so great with the invasive part, right? Because it's radioactivity. All right. So it's really great for certain things. But in terms of the cognitive side of things, which is what I'm doing is behavior cognitive, mm-hmm. It's, it's not as good because it takes time for that signal to pool. So you put, put someone in a PET study. Um, early studies did use PET because functional MRI came on board after PET, right? 
So uh, using FDG PET, you can put somebody in a scanner, you can have them do something, and after a while, you'll collect enough data in certain areas of the brain. But the resolution is not good, uh, you know, yeah. and the and the 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 timing isn't really good. MRI is just the best, right? Yeah. So functional MRI has a really good trade-off on that. Um, EEG doesn't have as good a temporal or a spatial resolution spatial, as functional. Yeah. Okay. And this is like a huge box, but I would say that functional box has gotten into, you know, a few. You know, we we're much better than than we're in millimeter level, not in For centimeter sure. level. Okay. So that is, I love that slide because, um, especially when I'm teaching people, I want them to understand that there's strengths and weaknesses of all of these things. Right. And we just try to find, we, you just have to interpret your data appropriately. I just never knew there were so many different ways. Oh, yeah. I didn't either. Yeah. Wow. There's even more than this, but we'll just leave it at that. And then this is just another thing about the functional brain mapping techniques. So I do some of these, like electrical uh, cortical stimulation of the brain. Um, you know, we can, we can stimulate the brain and that's what we do when we do awake mapping. So, you know, when uh, I go into this, into yeah. the surgery and the neurosurgeon, um, you know, uses an electrode to kind of temporarily stun some part of the brain yeah, yeah. and I, and the person can't talk. Well, that's electrical stimulation, obviously very invasive. Right. right? right. And I also do these things called WADAs where you put half the brain to sleep, uh, very, very briefly. Ooh. And so you you, um, you you put a catheter through the femoral artery up into the one side of the brain and then use a chemical that briefly puts the brain to sleep. And then you look at what the other half does. How, how do they do they have to shunt off the communication between the brain? How does well, it just get one side? Well, if you put it side? in right, it, it oh, goes in. That's so interesting. It, yeah, yeah. Wada. What yeah. is that? Huh? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Well, Wada's the name of a person who did it. It's really called the intracarotid ammo. Uh, it used to be called the intracarotid amobarbital test, but we no longer use amobarbital. If we have time, I'll tell you why, because it's an interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, then you can see Pat. It says spatial resolution of four millimeters. I don't believe that. It's probably bigger. And then ours is like down to one millimeter. And here's mag, which right. is magnetoencephalogram. Or I said that wrong, but anyway. And then DTI is um, tractography. So we're gonna we're gonna spend time talking about tractography and functional MRI. Okay. So this is the bold contrast. This is what it kind of looks like. So this is a really, this is low in the brain, so it's really pretty um, pixelated. And it's just, I, this is a post-processing uh, tool that I created in MATLAB. So, oh, nice. so it's just, it's the reason why we created this is because you can look at each voxel. So this is a voxel, this is a voxel. These are all, this is like nine voxels. Oh, I see. So this Within little square, square, yeah, is nine voxels. So you can see what every square looks like. So this person was seeing visual scenes or a crosshair. And so every two, uh, three seconds, they, they saw some visual, or every three seconds you collect a, a volume of the brain. And then for a, a chunk of time, they see uh, scenes, you know, outdoor scenes, or they see a crosshair. And so basically wow. what we're doing is a statistical question. We're saying where in the brain is there more activity when they're doing what we think they're supposed to be doing versus when they're not. Right. Okay. So some of the, this voxel clearly would not pass muster because there's no correlation there. But you can see the correlation's really nice. 
So, um, so I was mentioning this, but if people scan on a GE scanner and they do real time, mm -hmm. GE's really good about showing. I mean, you can kind of see real time on all of them, but GE is just the easiest. Um, not to do a brand. I mean, all of right. them do it. It's just a little bit trickier to kind of set it up. But real time in GE land is really easy, and you can just see uh, on off cycles for something as strong as vision. For other things that are more complex, like language, it, it doesn't show up this strong. Mm -hmm. Vision's just super easy to map because your brain wants to input that data. You talked about it briefly, and I don't want to jump around, uh, but I'm so interested in how you do your task. How, how do I set up my task? Yeah, like how do you, how okay, do you so, know that a certain task is going to get So I think that's even kind of what I, what I have on the screen. Oh, nice. So okay. language, motor, vision, those are the main things that you're going to map for clinical purposes. Okay, so, so the reason for this is a fewfold, all right? Mm -hmm. So um, when neurosurgeons need to take parts of the brain out, uh -huh. There are certain things that are more important than others, right? Right. So what's classically been the most important things are motor functioning, mm -hmm. language. Right. Like they need their patients, you know, they they don't want to create a deficit that in quote unquote eloquent cortex. And eloquent cortex from a neurosurgeon's point of view are these things <laughs> that are gonna really mess you up. Eloquent. All right. So vision isn't necessarily mapped. Um, in a lot of people because you can live with a visual deficit, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can live and function pretty well with a visual deficit. So that is mapped when people are extremely high functioning, maybe need their vision to a really high level. And then also their lesion is not such that, that the neurosurgeon kind of needs it to come out. So oh, okay. let me explain. So you have a, you have a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. Brain tumors, especially high grades, you really need to get out as much of that brain tumor as possible because it is correlated with how long you live, right. all right? So that is a quality of life thing, right? right. Your length of life, right. a huge quality of life. Pretty big deal, yeah. Right. So <laughs> if language, though, is near that, and the neuro, and so like neurosurgeons oftentimes want to get a margin around what they can see on the scan. So, you right. know, post-contrast scans, and when you see it bright, on the T1 post-contrast, yeah. that's lesion, all right? That's right. a GBM, right? Mm -hmm. So they know for a fact that the vascular system is broken down, and that's why you get that that leakiness of the brain, and you get that, that lesion, that okay? They want to take a margin around that because just because you can't see that there's tumor in that infiltrating you know area around where you see the contrast change, there is, right? right? So the more you can get out, the longer people have till the the cells come back and recur and the person's in trouble again right okay well if it's in parts of the brain that the neurosurgeon knows in general is involved in language then they want me to map their language function because they do not want to take out parts of the brain that are going to cause a language disturbance oh, because right, people right, right. can't function right right so there's these other papers that show like if you get a language if you sustain a, a major language disturbance after surgery with brain tumors your quality of life is such is 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 lower and you might not live as long just right. just from all these other factors right so in general neurosurgeons want to do as the least amount of damage as possible, of course. So, And they also want to be able to talk to their patients 
and explain the risks and benefits of surgery. Mm -hmm. And so these, they use these, these brain maps, okay, for this. Sure. So, so that's, that's why the neurosurgeons are very interested in mapping these things. Um, so vision, vision is mapped sometimes, but sometimes they'll just, vision doesn't move. The other things, okay, but before I say that, you know, memory is also an extremely oh, important factor. Right. But we don't know yet. Um, there's not a really good memory uh, task yet that we can use clinically. Like oh. there's a research study I was just looking at that does a memory task, but memory is really complex and really hard to like nail down um, oh, versus vision, which is super easy. And even right. motor is pretty easy. Language is more complex. Vision is way more complex than, or uh, memory is more complex than. Right. So, so, so when you say complex, you mean like if you are doing a memory task, it might be different in every patient? Yeah. So, oh, okay. so like think about, um, um, and, and where it's distributed in the brain. There's and like few, short term and long term might be different. Well, short term memory, I don't think we're going to map. What we're really trying to do is there's this famous patient that got both of his hippocampi taken out and his name is HM and he died recently. Like, um, but HM and he did it, they did it for epilepsy purposes because of wow. he had seizures. So they took out this back in the fifties before they knew anything wow. about the memory system to the extent that we know now. Right took out both of the hippocampus, and he had a just massive memory deficit. So, so for instance, you could be his doctor for years, mm -hmm. and every time you walked into the room, it'd be like he was seeing a new person. He had a very, very, like, extremely hard time understanding wow. or remembering people. Right. All right, so because that's because the hippocampus consolidates your memory, okay? Mm. That's what I'm trying to map. Because we still have people with hippocampi. We need to know if the other side is okay. That's right. why we put half the brain to sleep during the WADA. Because oh, okay. you put half the brain to sleep and you see whether their memory works on the other side. Oh, nice. Okay. Does that make sense? Because that's the only other way of pretty much determining what side, uh, well, what doubt, well, what side what doing you're the trying to do. What you're trying to do is if you need to take a hippocampus out because people have seizures or they have a tumor or they have something there, you want to make, if you're a neurosurgeon or, an, or the, his medical team, you want to make sure that the other side is working okay. I see. So you need to know that the other side is working all right before you, take, you take one out. One out. Yeah, right? that makes sense. Yeah. Because if the other side isn't working okay, then you have to, and the person can remember things, then you don't want to make them worse. Right? right? So the right. whole key of my brain mapping is to not make people worse than you know, to just mit mitigate any kind of deficits. That preserve what they love have. You, right? Well, they, um, well, so I take um, my, my, my job extremely seriously because, right. you know. Like you should. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> patients, I really love patients and I want to do the best I can. So I right. talk a lot with the neurosurgeons about the risks and benefits. So uh, we already talked about the fact that I don't do diagnostic, right? right. So, so, so let me show you an example of really how we do brain mapping. All right. So this, um, and if I didn't answer your question, just remind me. So just like, um, just like all neuroradiology, left is on uh, right. in the right side, right is right is left. I keep it in the, that. So individual differences is this phrase that I don't like very much, but it means that we all have slight differences in how things are organized. Right. The biggest, the best version of that is lefties. So people who are left-handed oh. sometimes have right hemisphere language. Sometimes they have left. 
the majority have lefts, just like everybody else. But sometimes they have right hemisphere. Yes. I'm a lefty and I have right. What if they're ambidextrous? <laughs> Does that cause problems? Or is that a real thing? I Okay. It's a real thing. This is my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two things that people are overly, and you guys probably notice that one of them. Two things that people think they are that they're probably less likely to be. One is ambidextrous and the other is claustrophobic. How many people uh, do you know that they're like, oh, I'm totally claustrophobic, so you as techs have to ask, can you get inside an elevator? And you rode like, the elevator yeah. up here. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. so, so, so everybody thinks they're claustrophobic to some degree, right. and we usually have to kind of just work through that, right? right. Well, ambidextrous, like anybody can be ambidextrous, right? Like you can teach yourself how to throw a baseball or bat left-handed. Right. Easy. That's not what I care about. I care about what hand do you use to write? What's your primary, right? With write, because that's language, right? Right. When you're writing, that's language. Oh, yeah. So that's all I care about. So every, you know, people tell me they're ambidextrous all the time, and I'm like, which hand do you write with? <laughs> I don't care what you're football with. And most people <laughs> have a hand that they write with. And then you say, and, and some people get kind of, you know, shirty about it. And so they're like, I'm ambidextrous. I'm like, okay, write your name. And it comes out all weird, you know, with their non-dominant hand. Right. It's a good point. But, I never thought about that. Right. But most people, uh, but I, I, I mean, it's really some people do, you know, because people rightly so use their right, you know, like I cut scissors with my right hand, but I am so left-handed because right. I never had left-handed scissors when I grew up so like everybody's a little bit ambidextrous but but what I'm using it for is solely to figure out where their language is probably in in the brain now uh, do you want me to tell you like an anecdote like one of my favorite oh yeah for sure so so um both myself and some of the neurosurgeons I work with are really like we really do ask about handedness a lot because I had this case many, many years ago, of this woman who came in, and she had had a right hemisphere um, lesion near where language would be. Um, If you were a lefty, some lefties, not all lefties, Mm -hmm. and uh, she, but she said she's right-handed, so she had surgery, and she comes in, and I'm working with her, and she's really impaired, you know, language-wise, and because I couldn't figure out why the neurosurgeon sent her, but she's really impaired. She needed more (coughs) surgery. So I was there to map her language. So um, I'm talking to her um, granddaughter who came in with her, you know, because I used to have people kind of sit and talk to me while I was scanning their patients so I could understand more about their, their you know, loved one and right. kind of integrate that in my report. So anyway, she's like, I don't know what happened. So she's like, well, my mom's in the in the waiting room. I'll go ask her. So it turned out that this woman had gone to a Catholic uh, high school or Catholic schooling and the nuns were really strict about and I think other 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 um, teachers too but they were really strict and didn't want people using their left hand so they taught her to use her right hand and so she grew up using her right hand to write but she was innately a left-hander oh wow! and so when the doc asked are you right-handed he you know didn't go into any more detail than you're right-handed didn't think that you know because language in uh righties is almost always in the left hemisphere right and functional mri was just coming on board there so we didn't use it a ton like we do now and so he he just did surgery and she got a deficit so now 
I'm when people say they're right-handed and they have a right hemisphere uh, uh, lesion, I'll say, "Are you really, 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 really right-handed?" <laughs> no one, nobody tried to change you, and, right. and I get Are you Catholic, every right? once in a while people go, "Oh no, well actually." The teachers did tell me I had to use my right, you know, oh, right, so, right. so it happens. That's a little anecdote, you so know. So funny. Dang. So anyway, this patient was left-handed, knew they were left-handed. So the neurosurgeon, re- um, and they have a lesion in the part of the brain. It's called the, um, do I have, okay. So the they have a lesion in part of the brain that's called the uh, left inferior, or the inferior frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. You good? Oh, no. Okay. So, so in the inferior frontal lobe, so it's right there. So see that? That's a contrast-enhanced oh, yeah. scan. So that's, that is a brain tumor, right? You see that right there? Well, so, um, so I mapped this person's expressive language abilities, and sure enough, they have right-sided language. And it, it, look how close it is. So that's why wow. they want me to map. That's awesome. Right? Because it's right on the edge. Brain activity associated with language is right on the edge. And this poor person, you know, like it's not very many people who are left-handed that have right hemisphere language dominance, but unfortunately that person does, right? right. So they got really unlucky. So sometimes I'm really very pleased to do this because the person might be left-handed, they have a right hemisphere lesion, and I can say, oh, no, it's all in the other hemisphere. You're safe. Go for it. And so that person's going to be prepped up by the neurosurgeon much more differently than somebody like this. Wow. That's that's in a nutshell. So so that's a big huge individual difference. Right. It, how does how how does the neurosurgeon use what what you give them? All right. So yeah. I have a picture of that. I'll just flip to that and then I'll go backwards. Uh, I don't know where it is. Oh shoot. There. All right. Oh, okay. So this is neurosurgery. Okay. So this is a neurosurgeon. Um, this is DTI in there, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But So my, so, you know, we just went light years into doing neurosurgery when they came up with something called neuronavigation. Mm -hmm. All right. So lots and lots of centers around here use um, the Medtronic stealth system. There's others called Brain Lab and other, there's more vendors, but um, um, this is just happens to be the Medtronic system. And so, so this is the coolest thing. So you know how you're doing scans, pre-surgical scans, mm-hmm. and then people go to surgery? Well, right. those those scans that you're doing, the reason why we get all anxious about no movement, all that kind of stuff, is because you're used up in the OR. So this is an MRI that was taken several days before this person came to surgery. And that's been a huge... Remember oh, when so you they're lining put, up this right, person so, in real time with their right, images. That so that's got. called neuro navigation. Oh. It lets you navigate based on the MRI in the person's brain in real time. So remember when we... Do you have a question? Well, I was just going to say that's probably the reason why we want to make sure that we scan in straight axial so it's yeah, reproducible. Yeah, it and, used to be, and it's generally considered... I, I'm old school. I think they're changing it now, but like... Mm-hmm. Straight axials are better for getting uh, registration, at least they used to be. I think the the companies are coming up to speed on that. Right. But remember when you used to do fiducials? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? The little donuts on people's heads. Yeah, and yeah. you used to, and there's like, and they still do it for radiation purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is fiducialist, all right? So this is why you have to get that extremely pex- pesky nose, 
Because wow. what happens is, obviously, the inside of the brain is not available for doing registration. Right. But what they do is a 3D construction of their face. And then they use all these spots, their ears. That's why right. I don't like like all headphones. Because it changes. The headphones change the skin the around profile. the ears. Oh, yeah. uh, the nose. All of that information is used and what happens is they just have this uh, 3D, uh, uh, they, they have this locator system that allows them to triangulate and um, in real, real time um, uh, line up this scan with the patient's head. Nice. In re- so that so that the so what and then this is called a like we call it a wand. It's got lots of it's a probe that that neurosurgeon is putting in the person's brain right here. See that right there? Oh. There is some shift cuz obviously when you open up the person's brain there's shift, right? Cuz you can see there's no um this is a pre-surgical scan, right? right. So there's no like holes in their head, right? right? There's no opening of the cranium. But uh clearly he did, right? Like um right. however this is this is this is why that, those scans are so important. Right. And does it does it like get a big alert if something's like misregistered like how did it oh well yeah so well right and and they struggle with that and we try to do all sorts of things to make sure that we can you know and the neurosurgeons though these these are people who do these surgeries for breakfast lunch and dinner so they understand shift right right? because that's what it's called brain shift right oh right so they understand and that's but 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 at you know some centers there's something called uh, intraoperative MRI. Oh, yeah. And so intraoperative MRI is when the neurosurgeon is taking out a lot of the tumor, um, say, like, so this is the tumor right here. So mm-hmm. say they take that out, right? But they want to make sure that they got everything that they wanted to get. Well, at, after some point when they've done enough surgery, this 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 is going to, uh, this isn't going to stand anymore, this kind of registration right so they'll do a intra-op mri while the person's still kind of oh yeah in the uh surgical theater enough that if that surgery if they see that they can take out more then they can do more surgery they have a new scan to re um uh calibrate to the person that takes into account all that shift because it is the brain right and then they can do more surgery yeah that just seems like a game changer because like how you were talking about earlier how important it is for them to get as much out as possible so if they need to go back in and finish up you know getting a little bit out exactly extends that life so much longer exactly so how does my work uh, play a role in this. This is tractography, but it's uh, MR, uh, functional MRI looks the same in the scan, right. just a different color, and it's not going to be that deep because it's it's cortex, right? Right. So, but you, but this is a perfect example of why it matters so much. So this is the cortical spinal tract. Okay, this is the part. If you want to move you say, anything, right, right, you want to move anything. This is the white matter that lets you move it. Because it goes oh. from your motor cortex down through your brain, down into your spinal cord, exits out where it's supposed to exit, and you're, you can move part of that body. Okay? Right. So you can, you can cause people to have a major motor problem by uh, removing the part of the brain that controls that or mm-hmm. cutting the white matter that controls that. Right. Yeah. Right. Or having, you know, doing the same thing in a spine. So the tracks are pretty much 
the nerves yeah they're the nerves so yeah yeah so it's white matter nerves nerves. okay Okay. so so if you see this you can tell why this neurosurgeon really wanted that information that's very helpful for them to know how far over they can come before they start getting close to that white matter tract which they will not intend to ever (laughs) cut Right, right. So they want the most information. So this is why it's so absolutely important that I do a good job in mapping these things, right? Because this is serious. And the neurosurgeons really need good data. So so let's go backwards, and I'll show you some more fMRI, all right? So so nowadays, um, it's been really controversial. There's many sites, and there's some people Mm. who just don't think it's useful at all. Right. Because right. we were kind of like you said, it's kind of a new procedure. Mm-hmm. So there's still um, a lot of controversy over. Well, controversy is not the right word. There's just neurosurgeons who are like, nope, this isn't going to help me. And other neurosurgeons who are like, I really need this information. Right. And I've had I've been uh, pleased because some of the neurosurgeons, you know, I actually think it's really helpful and important uh, in many cases. And it's kind of nice to see neurosurgeons who are kind of in the former category become in the latter category and actually think it's helpful. So there's research now to show that it decreases, like the information that you get can help to decrease mortality and morbidity in brain tumor patients. So, So, you know, things are being published that say that. So what, what do I really help with? All right. So this is, a T2, right? And you can see the huge lesion right here. T2s, you know, if you get all of that out, then um, say it's 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 kind of associated with a low-grade tumor. And oftentimes those people can have long, long lives. You know, like uh, high-grade tumors are a little tricky, but low-grade tumors, you know, people can last for a really long time. There's a little bit of motion, see that? Uh, but anyway... I won't quiz you on all the brain parts, but I could. <laughs> quiz Reggie. Yeah, there you go. You? All right, so so the so so eloquent cortex. This is an example of two parts of eloquent cortex. Right. This is motor functioning. This is where lip functioning is. Right. Oh. So that's the lowest part of the motor cortex, and this is language. So this is expressive language. This is comprehension. So so you take that part out right there, and the person won't be able to comprehend. Like, they wouldn't understand this podcast. They couldn't follow. Oh. And people can be walkie-talkies, right? I, um, they can seem like to the doctor, to the s- physician, that they're doing pretty well. And then I find them to not really understand things very well at all. You it, guys have probably experienced right. that. Does that come off to them like we're speaking another language or they just... Well, so it's really interesting. So, um, so an example of this was this incredible incredibly bright person that I scanned who um, I think she was a writer or something. She had some sort of, you know, she was verbal, right? Mm -hmm. So she goes to the doctor and and when you go to the doctor, you can pretty much tell what the doctor's going to ask you to do, right? Stick Mm -hmm. out your tongue. So you understand the word tongue and you stick out your tongue, right? Right. But you might not hear stick out your tongue, but you know what they're going to say. Right. So she could really talk about her disorder really well. Like, well, I was doing this and I found that. And she could verbalize that really well. She could follow certain commands. 
But then, um, and so I was kind of fooled by her, but then I started asking her specifically to do my tasks, right? Because, you mm-hmm. know, as you guys know, because you, you are near me when I'm practicing with patients, <laughs> right. I practice with all the patients beforehand and make sure that I understand their level of impairment or mm-hmm. intactness. And I have to describe what I'm doing because it's so different than a regular scan that right. people really need to know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so basically this woman, I was, I was just kind of having her do a fluency task and I wanted to say, so I asked her, okay, so like pretend, you know, um, like tell me all the things you can that, that, um, you, that are food that you would eat. And she looked at me and she goes, tea, tea, I drank some tea. Cause in her mind, she didn't understand why I would be asking her about that. Right. Because it's not something she's going to do. It's not something a doctor asks. So suddenly I had gone into this realm and she doesn't really understand that because I had said, "Okay, we're going to do a task where you're going to say all the words that you can. So, like, let's practice, you know, tell me all the things that you can that you you can eat, because that's usually a way for me to figure out how fluent they are and whether they can do that simple task. And she couldn't do it at all. So she couldn't understand that. Wow. Right? So, like, if you don't ask them in a certain way, you wouldn't know. Right. Right? So that's why I think clinical neuropsychologists are really good at doing functional imaging like this. Because we work with patients all the time, and we can suss out when somebody's kind of not going to be able to do it. Right. So I have a lot of step-down tasks. I still could map her, but I had to seriously back off and do easier tasks than I was prepared to do. Mm. Right? Right. Dang, what would be easier than naming the foods that you eat? Oh, well, (laughs) she didn't really need that because she needed comprehension. (laughs) So I figured out. So instead of showing her um, things that I had to practice comprehension a lot with her and figure out what she could, what level she could read. You know, sometimes I have people read whole paragraphs, sometimes just sentences. And if they're really impaired, just simple words. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do a lot of different things. Right. You know, I'm I see always, your playbook. <laughs> yeah, I'm always changing things up right. to a, to. And that's sort of a difference between me and maybe some of the other ways it's done when technologists do it. They have just right. a playbook that they don't really know where the patient's at and right. they just do them all. It's just like vendors, right? Like a preset vendor playbook. Yeah. And we just... You know, select one of five. Yeah, tasks. and it's very helpful a lot of the times, but I probably have more play. I think right. the neurosurgeons have just infamously sent me people who are incredibly hard to map. Right. Um, you know, like the person's. You know, I need to know their motor functioning, and the person cannot move. <laughs> Those are always tricky ones. You know, so like I think I have a bigger playbook of things that I can do because I'm used to working with patients. Right. But so like what they want with this. So this is, this is, oh yeah, sorry. Um, So this person in um, the blue is two types of language. One is expressive language and that's way far away. So we don't have to worry about that. But this is that comprehension that we were just talking about. And then this is part of the motor cortex, right? Mm -hmm. So the neurosurgeon is both, um, wanting to figure out sort of what, how much they can take of this lesion. But part of neurosurgery, as I've learned of working with them, is they're trying to find the, the uh, 
the smallest amount of good tissue they have to go to to get to a lesion, right? So they're looking for the smallest amount. So trajectory is the word that that comes to mind. So they will change their trajectory depending on what I find to be eloquent cortex, right? right? So like clearly this would be nice for them, but they're not going to do that, right? These are tracts or, or, or like you said, um, like axons or, or uh, white matter that is associated with language. And then this is the cortical spinal tract. So you can see that I can put all that data all together for them wow. so that they can understand that. So they're going to be watching this area over here. They're going to be watching this area over here. And they're going to figure out a way to get in that doesn't interfere. And all of these data are up in the OR for them. So they can look at it before time on the packs, right. and then they can look at it, in the, and then they have it real time in the, neuro, the neurosurgery suite. Wow, that's amazing. Is their ultimate goal is to map all adjacent tissues? So like, well, no. I see things. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So eloquent, that's why the eloquent is in red, is um, we could map, well, so, so visuospatial abilities. Mm-hmm. I'm not... I there are some differences of opinion I think out there for people who like to do brain mapping. I'm a clinician who's who work. I, I mean, I work with like 30 neurosurgeons. Right. I mean, I have them all on speed dial because they're very nice to respond to me, and and they've also been really good over the years for me to really develop an understanding of what is important to them and mm-hmm. what is not. Right. Messy messy views are terrible for them. They don't want to see everything. I I had this one neurosurgeon who was a man of few words. Very few words. (laughs) I think I knew him. (laughs) (laughs) Very few words. My my favorite story about him is one time we were meeting and he just said one word. He said brevity. Like he didn't even say I want this brief. He said brevity. (laughs) Right? Very few words, right? So one I used to map all the time, both hands. Like this is where they tap with the left hand and this is where they tap with the right hand. And he's like, side of lesion only. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like they don't want because it's really messy up in the OR if you have all these brain blobs floating all over and they have to figure it out. So I try to map what they need and nothing more, right? Nice. So, so to get back to your original question, what's eloquent? All right. So, some people, so some people might think visuospatial abilities are really important, but you know, we're language-based people. If you lose your car in the parking lot, first of all, you can still function because mm-hmm. half the people can't find their car in the parking lot and they're right. perfectly fine. But what we really do is we use other, we can compensate more for visual spatial functioning. Nice. And it's not, we don't need to communicate with our, you know, communication with your caregiver is of ultimate. Like you use your, you lose your language and you lose something really huge, right? Mm. But if you lose your visual spatial ability, then you just use verbal cues to figure out like, oh yeah, I turn left at the corner, right at that, you, you know, I turn left at street X. And you know the word left and you know street X and you pretty much can do it. So right. I don't map everything. Right. I map what's important and what the neurosurgeon, you know, it, there is a bit of a, um, uh, like I don't have visual spatial tasks so I couldn't map them. Mm-hmm. The other thing about languages is I'm very careful to explain to the patients, especially high functioning, what I am mapping and what I'm not mapping. So these are very broad abilities, the ability to comprehend what what's going on. You know, um, 
this is not like you might naming is all over the brain so people and naming is affected by drug like medications um seizure medications other medications radiation chemo everything affects naming so i do map naming in this one part of the brain that's critical for naming but basically it's hard to map that yeah so not everything gets mapped okay Okay? nice um so this so i'm just gonna show this to you just to say like this is actually um one of the printouts of somebody who got mapped by a um a technician based Mm -hmm. system and so the other thing about being a neuropsychologist and um i really understand all aspects of functional MRI. So there's, like you guys said, I know how to scan. I know what the TR is. I know, I understand field of view. I understand, you know, how big my voxel is. I understand all that kind of stuff. I understand the cognitive tasks and the functional neuroanatomy of the brain. Mm -hmm. I also understand statistics and how I have to make sure that my data are real but not, and then what I really understand is what the neurosurgeon needs to see, all right? And so when I was early on and I was a researcher becoming a clinician, my maps looked kind of like this. But as I said, with my brevity neurosurgeon, this kind of stuff is not super helpful for them. So over the years that I've worked on, that right there is motor functioning, right? Well, where is it supposed to be? They need to know what where the gyrus is, right? So this is the gy- this is the premotor gyrus right here. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this, didn't pop up right here. Let me see. Oh, whoops! It, underneath this is a better picture, but but um, you can see that my my tasks map. That's a motor task right there, and that's where the motor cortex is. So that tells them exactly where it is. Where is it on this big blob? I don't know. So I've learned to really adjust what I do to really accommodate the neurosurgeons. Right. So this is the motor cortex. Motor cortex doesn't really move around very much like language does. So mm-hmm. like, but when the brain has a tumor in it, it distorts it so much the neurosurgeon can't figure out is it before this, is it anterior to this tumor or posterior? So they want to know, and is it this gyrus or is it this gyrus when you kind of lose that beautiful kind of hand knob area? So you can see mine just, I mean, I still have like kind of a blobby shape for it, but it's way more specific than this would be. Right. I wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to. Do, do the to, colors mean anything? Colors, co- like, so they're, they're just mapping all these language maps, you know. And, and you you remember what my language looked like? Like this is, I can't figure out right. what this means. So it's, so I spend a huge amount of time trying to figure out how best to describe my data for the neurosurgeons. I also talk to them a lot and just make sure that they understand what the limitations of the data are. Right. So that kind of comes up when I do DTI. So this is DTI. So, uh, so, so functional MRI maps pretty much cortex and brain function that way. And then DTI maps the white matter tracts that line it up. Like we talked about the cortical spinal tract, right? Right. So, you, so motor cortex, this is motor cort. whoops, sorry, backwards. This is motor cortex, but you could leave that and then cut the, D, you know, the DTI and you're still going to get a motor deficit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you got to pay attention to, so now we do these side by side, same exam along with the high resolution pictures 
and then I overlay them all because, you know, we collected all that, you know, all these data are collected at the same time, okay? So this is what DTI looks like. Um, I could tell you about DTI a little bit, but um, this is what you need to know about DTI. It's still a time-based scan. Mm -hmm. So you collect data over a course of time. And what it does is it labels the, um, the, the water molecules in a certain way right. so that over the course of time you can, you can um, track those water molecules as they flow. Okay, uh, so what happens like their is their direction of flow, or just like both, both uh, where they are and and going. and where they're going, oh, and nice. and so, but but what you're also doing is how much flow there is. All right, so this is the big bugaboo. <laughs> when when you think about a proton in a water molecule, if it's in gray matter, it's pretty well stuck where it is, right? So okay. you can you can knock it down and have it travel, and it's just not going to travel because it's it's compartmentalized in right. tissue, right? right? Or extracellular fluid, which is usually pretty oh, packed in. Yep. CSF, it can go wherever it wants to go, right? But white matter, it's um, what it is doing is if you understand what mo white matter is, it's uh, tracts have a myelin sheath on them, and that's fat. It cannot flow. Um, across that water doesn't flow across fat. Mm -hmm. So what you're really measuring is um, when you have a tract, uh, like a whole bunch of fibers, like axons together, and they make up a big tract. Water's trapped in between those myelin sheaths. Uh, okay, right, right, right. so it's just it's kind of there. So it can move, but it can't move out. It can't move across those myelin sheaths. It's just going to move along it. All right. Uh, so it's moving right along, and so that's called fractional anisotropy. So isotropy is you drop a, uh, a drop of oil in a big uh, jar of um, liquid like water. It's going to go any direction. So there's going to be vectors going in all directions because these things can go. It doesn't matter where it goes. Right. If you travel, but if you're in white matter, you have a tract, and you're going to – so it's anisotropic. And so you're going to have a vector in a certain direction, and, and you know, it's going to be bi-directional, bi right? Right. But it's going to be, so like if you have a tract and water's moving along it, the, the vector is going to be strong because there's lots of movement, right. like the CSF, but it's also going to have a direction to it, all right? Because it's not going to go up this way. It's all not right. going to go down that way. It's not going to go that way, that way, because it's surrounded by myelin. It's going to go that way. Right. So that's why, and that's called fractional anisotropy. I know, say that three okay. times fast, right? Yeah. I, <laughs> I say I can, it one time fast. Yeah, I can say it really fast. I can say all these things really fast until, you know, you're on the air, right? <laughs> right. So anyway, it goes really, really fast. Or it goes, so it, so it moves. Right. And so FA is high in white matter. Right. So DTI, these are little pictures of little voxels. And what they did was, so this is a picture of a voxel, right? So it can't go this way because it's going to hit white matter. Oh. It can't go this way because it's going to hit myelin and white matter. It, it can go, but it can go this way, right? right? Let's right. just say, right. all right? So they colorize that direction. Um, but, you can, but it also is a four-dimensional uh, 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 pixel, right? Because oh. you've got, you've, so it's got, a, it's got um, an FA. Mm-hmm. 
and then it's got a direction. Right. So when you run DTIs, you'll notice. So a, a, a three directional is just your typical. Um, be, uh, like what diffusion do you guys? Yeah, it's or? just a diffusion okay. weighted. Nice. Right, because you're right. looking at how much movement. Yep. Because strokes Diffusing. don't. Yeah, yeah. You get you and the, and if you read the, they'll say it's uh, restricted movement or restriction. Right. right? Diffusion restricted. Yep. Yeah. Diffusion restriction. That's how you figure out a stroke. Right. 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 Well, we take that to the. We can do this in normal tissue. And we just take it to the nth degree because we add in, instead of just three directions, X, Y, and Z, we add in a boatload of more. Right. Okay? So 20 directions, 32, oh, yeah. 64, 128. Right. And what you're doing is just getting a finer and finer line of just how much, uh, what the direction really is in that voxel. Do you remember okay? what direction this one was? How many directions? Well, so, oh, this is, I, I don't even know where okay. I got this. Um, this is um, this is probably a 20 direction one. Okay. We use 32 mainly. Mm -hmm. um, um, so clinically, um, for research purposes, people want more and more directions, and they'll do two versions of it so they can do these funky um, analyses. For clinical purposes, you know, time is we oh, yes, we yes. have time issues, right, right? right? Patients start moving, right? We need these to be as cheap as possible so we can't have people in there for three hours for one scan right. so we don't want to uh so we usually can collect about in four minutes a reasonable amount of data with like 32 directions so what we do is i do something called tractography so i take it offline and i have a program and i can isolate tracts that have certain qualities, so the FA is high enough, so I know it's still white matter, mm -hmm. and then it's got a direction that I expect it to go, and basically there's this seeding program that takes math and calculates, like, is this voxel here as w associated with that voxel next to it based on its FA and its direction? Oh. So if it takes a 90, 90 uh, degree De turn, it's not the same track, right. depending on what I decide it's right. gonna do. So this is just kind of showing you how an, a track gets isolated. So this is all that data that has directions. Ooh, you think it'll run? Yeah. Oh, so it it's got directions. So it's all the voxels in the brain. Oh, that's cool. And so you get all that data, but then boom, you can isolate one tract. Oh, and that's the cortical spinal tract. Cool. So depending when you put your seed one or seed two yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So but so so it's cool. They're trying to move to um 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 programs where that are automated oh um so i've been involved i'm a i'm a consultant to some of these companies and mm -hmm. they're getting closer but they're still not there but again this is why it's really important to have somebody who knows what they're doing make these tracks For sure first of all um once i had an engineer who thought it looked great and was sending up like all the tracks in the brain and the neuros and i'm like the neurosurgeons don't want to see that like <laughs> can you imagine being up in the or and just have all these tracks oh in the brain gosh. You need what you need, right, right? Right. So my job is to do that, but it's really rife with difficulties because you're drawing things. So, um, so you can draw a little, like you know, you can miss things or you can do too much. So what I do is I'm very conservative, right? Right. Because um, there are two risks. So if you're in research, your risk is saying that something is occurring. That really isn't. So you usually have this um, uh, true positive problems. You don't want to mm -hmm. say something's truly positive when it's negative, right? right? So there's an alpha error thing problem. 
Well, in brain surgery, I'm worried about the exact opposite, that I said something was negative and oh. it actually is part of it. Oh. So you have to be conservative the opposite direction right. because you don't want the neurosurgeon to think that some part of the brain is not functioning and then they take it out and the person has a deficit. Right. So I am conservative. Um, sometimes um, like these programs have cropping things and texts do it and they say, oh, it looks prettier if you take that out. And I'm like, no, <laughs> because you don't know whether it's still functioning. All right. right. So this is what it looks like in terms of it. These are three. So you can see, like, this is supposed to go like that right there. But this brain tumor has bowed it way out. So you can see why the neurosurgeon would want to know about that, right? Because it had an equal chance of bowing it out that direction, right? Yeah. So did it, did it oh, splay wow. these things out that direction or this direction? So not only do, do the neurosurgeons get this basic idea of, like, okay, motor system, anterior to the lesion. But they also can look at it in 3D and as they're doing surgery, see how close they're going to come to the corticospinal tract. Okay? So the one thing I wanted to say about quality control and, like, knowing your underlying data and understanding what these techniques do is look at that. That is a huge – do you guys know what that is? That uh, is – no, that's an AVM. AVM. It is ginormous, isn't it? Yeah. Oh well, guess God. what? Uh T2 scanning in an AVM doesn't work, right? Oh, right. Right? Oh, yeah. Because well, we of blood. Because of before. Yeah. Right, right? Yeah, because yeah, it yeah. interferes with the signal. Exactly. So see this right here? This is the underlying, this is DTI data, and this is the underlying data. It's not there. Right. Is it not there because it's not there? Or is it not there because we can't see it because of our signal? That's why you have to know what the, your scan is doing. Yep. You have to know what your scan is doing. And that's why I spend a huge amount of time sweating this kind of stuff. Because that's what tough. the neurosurgeons get is this picture, right? And the neurosurgeons, um, many of them are very savvy to things, but they're not really savvy to signal dropout, right? right. I mean, some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. Right. So they don't know that this is just missing data. Like, see that? That's missing data. It's, right. it's fine over here. So who's to say that there's not tissue that goes all the way out here and it's just not good for DTI, right? I, this is, so I show them these pictures and I, and, and I had this one neurosurgeon, um, you know, and I tell them all the caveats. Like, look, this is, yeah, the cortical spinal tract's on this side, but I don't know how far back it goes into this AVM. Oh, right. Right? Right. And I show them, and I and and I'm an you know I I I have a lot of energy to let neurosurgeons know exactly that, which is a little bit different than a lot of people. Like I will literally track them down and say this is what it looks like because I want right. them to you know I don't I don't want them to just assume something. And so now they're and right. some of them are really funny because I I always. Before I work with a neurosurgeon, I insist that I meet with them and tell them the limitations of, of all of my techniques. Right. And one of them used to go, you know, I know, I know, don't cut out the dotted line. Because you know, like, <laughs> for him, I had to tell him, look, you cannot cut on the dotted line. This is not the way we did deal with the That's surgery. Funny. So anyway, but do you see why I, I spend so much time uh, like sweating this out, yeah, right? So you have to know your underlying data. And so that's my key. And so that's just a picture of, so here's this neurosurgeon who trusts me. And, you know, I mean, they don't, 
they also understand the weaknesses and strengths right. and but they but they think that I did a good enough job and so they're using that data. So that's why that there's a there's an ease that comes across them when they can trust that type of data too. Like when right. they know it's accurate. Well, you know, and we work really hard and um, you know, and they know the limitations. And right. it's all about, you know, understanding what you can and cannot do with these data. Right. And it takes a while and, and everybody's a little bit different. And so I do, I really spend a huge amount of time with my my neurosurgeons that I work with. Um, so this is just fun because um, it's it's a research area. So so remember how I said that that functional MRI is not the only kind of functional data? Well, this is perfusion. So we also use perfusion to understand because the neurosurgeons use that to make decisions about how to take out um, oh, more, yeah. more tissue as well. So we combine all of this stuff. So they get the cortical spinal tracts, which are near this T2 signal on this person. They know where the motor strip is compared to that. They know that language is on the other side, so they kind of don't have to worry too much about that. Right. And then uh, there's the hand motor knob. So see how specific that is boom yeah. yeah wouldn't you rather see that than that big huge blob yeah so that's that's the that's this is the bread and butter of what i do and um and you know um here's a couple just because guys aren't kicking me out yet i'll tell you a couple <laughs> so th- so i give a lot of lectures and people and 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 neurosurgeons and i go back and forth about this and it goes back to your question of what we do what i do map and what i don't mm-hmm. In research, there's a huge amount of interest in things like, um, uh, I'm going to show you this one. Whoops. This one. Okay. There's a huge amount of interest in um, bilingualism, right? Everybody wants to think that the brain is just like so much better when you're bilingual, right? Right. Right. It has Um, to be. Well, it has its strengths and weaknesses, right? (laughs) Right. Because like uh, it kind of just depends. But here I am to tell you for basic functions, uh, it's it, you can uh, if you're truly, truly bilingual, mapping basic functions like I told you about, like comprehension, map, map the same. So this is the blue is one language. The red is the other. I think blue is. Oh, yeah. So sure. So um, so the the idea about bilingualism is um, it kind of depends on when you acquired your second language. It also depends. So are you translating a lot? Because you'll light up a whole bunch of part of the brain if you're still translating because that's not really language. Right. But I think of language as being the symbolic representation of information. Like when I'm talking, you guys are understanding a concept and mm-hmm. I, you're not translating. Right? right. Right. So I often help ask people this kind of funny thing um which sounds really freudian but it's not supposed to be i ever i ask them what language do they uh dream in because you can't control and and i did i started doing it because i had some bilingual people in my lab and one of them said you know like oh you know it's kind of funny when i'm talking to my friends in my dreams i'm speaking english but when i'm talking to my grandma i'm speaking spanish because we always speak spanish right so that is a to me, that's a really bilingual person because uh, they're not translating at all. They're right. just they're just doing it, just do you know, because it. it's the symbolism of how they <sighs> communicate with others. Right, right. Right. So in this picture. So this is what I was trying to say is that this is comprehension. You can see how close they had a surgery before, but then they're going to get this part taken out, maybe because this signals different. And this is this is comprehension of Spanish 
and English. Wow. So do, do you think they overlap a lot? Oh, I yeah. think they overlap oh, a lot. Yeah. And the same thing up here. This is expression. So they're saying things in, in, under their breath, you know, in Spanish and English. And there's red overlapping with blue. Okay. So that's something that it comes up all the time for me. And, and you know, so it kind of depends on how you want it. My data is really repeatable. So this is the same person to seven months apart. So that's pretty repeatable because it has to be repeatable. Like right. You, if you're that's mapping you know something that, yeah. that's just unreliable, then it's not going to work. And then um, this, ju- this also shows repeatability. Now, this person was um, a little bit, bi- you know, but that this, this is, in my opinion, not bi- uh, bilateral. They really are left because there's all this activity on their left side. Right. But you can see that they've maintained all of that. These are just different tasks and different colors. So if they did kind of, let's say, they nicked a piece of that left side, would that right side still? All right. So that's plasticity. So plasticity is a really also another kind of overused term sometimes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it is true that people are slightly plastic, but there's probably an age-related. So oh. if you're a 50-year-old and you have a brain tumor and it's in where Broca's area is, right. you aren't going to be able to speak. Like uh, your other side of your brain. Back, huh? But I did have an 18-year-old. I have a slide somewhere where I scanned her, and she had a she had left hemisphere language dominance, probably a little bit of right, uh-huh. and she was young. And she had a tumor right in front of it, and they took out the tumor, and she had she went through speech rehab a little bit, and she didn't really have like a major deficit, but she had a little bit, and so then she had tumor regrowth, so she had to come back, and language is on the other side. So oh, no interest. I think awesome. she had it both sides, right, and then like and then like once you had the lesion, the language kind of. But but the thing is, once you're kind of, I I wouldn't patients really want to believe in that. Speech and imagine. language people want to believe in that, but yeah. I'm here to tell you, like, it's it's not as big as you think it is. Was that person left-handed by chance? Because you said... No, they were right. Yeah. Dang. yeah. But this is... Um, I, I threw in this little picture because this is a quadrantinopsia. This is a vision task, and this person can't really see out of this side. And I can pick that up. So I'll, I used to give a vision task every... I, it was my control task. But now I know my data really well, and I don't really need a control task. But I give a control task, a, a vision task, and sometimes the patient would be fine, and no one's picked up anything. And I'm like, "Hey, look at my nose. Can you see up here?" And they're like, "No." <laughs> and and it's and that task picks it up. But a neurosurgeon's not going to really bother with that because, like I said, the person didn't even know that they had a quadrantinopsia. All right. So they had just. They couldn't see up here, but it wasn't interfering with their life. Right. So, th- so vision is extremely hardwired. It's not going to be moving anytime soon. Um, you just. It won't. seems more displaced too. Oh. Um, vision. Vision. I mean, it's you said it's very localized, but it seems. It's it's in the more. back of the brain. Oh, it's it, it does cover your Large vision space. is so important to you that it covers a lot of brain territory in mm. the back of your brain and. Right little research here is that it's relatively spared in a lot of conditions right so alzheimer's disease it takes a long time for that part of the brain to show atrophy a lot of disorders the actual visual cortex is maintained for a long time i mean people with ms have vision problems because their white matter is affected right so 
So those that was a huge amount of information. This is just me. Remember how I told you, like how mapping the brain is complex? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So finger tapping, these are three different parts of the brain that you need just to tap your finger. But oh, this wow. is, think of those are all parts of the brain that can contribute to memory. Oh. So it's just a ton of things. So I'm in the process of developing a new memory paradigm that I'm hoping will work. But we'll see, you know, (laughs) it's been so there are research papers where they do memory tests. And I just read one. The person does. Two 13 minute tasks, 13 minutes, and then isolates only the area that they're interested in to get enough signal. You couldn't be like, what do you think about what you had for dinner last night? I tried that. It doesn't work. Or think about your. um, No, it lights up other parts of the brain, but it doesn't map that. Mm. listen this is the holy grail right there's there we have tried so hard i can get really great activation of the hippocampus in group studies for research but not for individuals right cross your fingers what about things that are closely tied to like emotions like because i know like 9-11 and things like that oh um remember where they no then you light up emotion so there's this part of the brain actually i did do this task i actually piloted it out not so long ago, where I did, you know, like, so um, there's there's this part of the brain called the posterior cingulate that is affected in memory functioning, uh-huh. but it's not the hippocampus. It's a little bit different. It doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't cause such a major memory problem as mm. losing your hippocampus. Do you really want to know about memory for a couple minutes? Oh, yeah. So memory requires encoding, consolidation, and then retrieval. So what we're kind of talking about is retrieval. Right. The hippocampus is critical for um, the hippocampus is critical for consolidation. So in Alzheimer's disease, when you have hippocampal damage, you have something called rapid forgetting. So so we'll give a memory test to people, and they'll remember some bits. You know, they'll remember some things. Right. And then they have rapid forgetting. So like after 15, 20 minutes, they remember. Sometimes they don't even remember getting the list. Sometimes they don't remember anything about it. Sometimes they just can't remember the stuff. So that's when your classic grandmother who, like, asks you the same question over and over again. Right. Tell you the At same the story. time you say it, she understands what you're saying. She's encoding it, but it's not being stored. Hmm. So she just loses it, you know. She just wow. can't remember it over time. That's the hippocampus, and that's critical for that. So these other parts of the brain that that are more easily mapped are like the posterior cingulate which is kind of like oh let's see what did how relevant is this to me it's kind of your memory relevance system so Uh. so anything that's emotionally charged is really relevant but it really lights up the posterior cingulate i mean i tried i tried that and i i get so much activity in the posterior cingulate so quickly it's great but not, but the hippocampus is lags no, way so, behind. Right. Well, and two, I know that like as soon as you have a concussion, they're like, "Who's the president?" Right? Or like, "Who's that?" Is that still the posterior cingulate that's uh, kind of well, helping you regulate? That's that's confusion. Like that's um that um they ask you those questions for orientation purposes. Uh huh. And um, if you get your bell rung, you're just so out of it, you can't answer anything. A fever is going to do the same thing. There's not right. one part of the brain that's doing oh, that. It's I kind see. of like, 
you're shaking up, right? It's just too, yeah. So patients who are that impaired, you notice I can't map them. Right. Because okay. they just can't follow things cool. well enough. Right. Yeah. Nice. So, um, but yeah, so the, so so I'm working on memories. I have this new idea that I'm not even going to talk about because it's so it's so novel that I don't know. I'm really excited, but if I do that, that will change things a lot cuz we won't, you know, like but that's been the holy grail. I've been doing this for 20 years. Nice. And I I don't think anybody's found anything. I mean, we can't do 26 minutes of scanning on patients. Right. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing if I can talk even longer but um clinical versus research so a 13 minute scan for a undergrad or for people who are volunteering is nothing like they know they're going to do that all right but my tasks so so i have to have much so uh let me see how do i want to say this so research would look at my tasks and feel like these are very boring and not very interesting because they're Mm -hmm. very basic tasks and so they're not telling us any anything larger about brain functioning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, their tasks aren't going to be useful at all for clinical because they're too long, they're too esoteric, they're not specific enough to functions that are are relevant for neurosurgery. So my tasks, um, and then and then some of the CAN tasks are even longer and more esoteric because. They're aimed. Uh, they don't have a. They don't necessarily have a clinician doing them. They might have a technologist. Right. So they have to collect data on how well people are doing. But as you guys know, I'm there to make sure that the data look right immediately, and I can tell when the patients aren't doing it. Right. And so I can actually go back. You know, like right. somebody uh, who was with me. Somebody was sleeping. Like had fallen asleep. Oh. And I was, I was, ma- I was watching, and and by the combination of me looking at the data and and sort of movement and everything, I went back, and patients just don't want to admit that they were sleeping because they're kind of embarrassed. Right. And even if I tell them like, no, I just need to know because I'm trying to map your brain action. Right. right. <laughs> and so I said to the person, so did you? fall asleep during that and they said yeah how did you know how did you know and i said i'm literally you know reading reading your mind mind. (laughs) (laughs) so so i can get away with things that even technicians can't get away because they're not going to be looking at the data as we go along you know they're going to wait till the end and then they got to look at did the person press a button or not you know so i don't need to do that but then the other thing is, is I need to make my task as fast as possible. So my vision task is two minutes long. My my language tasks are three to three and a half minutes long. And um, one day I scanned a person, and then the next day I did a WADA test on them. So I was because uh, I do all those kinds of um, mapping. Mm-hmm. And so I I and this is fairly recently, and I was talking to the person like, oh hey, how'd that functional go for you? You did great. And he and he's like. So that test that test you gave me was so long, and it was three minutes long, right. and still they don't want to do it, and still <laughs> they're complaining. So, right. so like uh, the the transition of trying to make the translation of research tasks right. to clinical tasks is a really daunting thing that 
researchers, you know, they're not really aware of what I have to do to make something work in a patient. Right. It's almost a different ball game, even though it's, it's the same rules. It, it's different because I'm evaluating my data differently. Right. I'm not even looking for false positives nearly as much as I'm looking for false negatives. Right. The way I look for false positives is redundant mapping versus just using a a thresholding method that they use, statistical method. So, like, it's really <laughs> different. And I jump between those two all the time because I'm a, cl- I'm a researcher, too. Wow. So Nice. So that's what I do. Nice. Well, do you have a question? Yeah, I've got a few. Oh, you Actually, <laughs> kind of along those lines, I imagine you get f- interesting questions from your friends and family. Like, can you think of any right now? Oh, uh, well, you know, I get the questions of like, what exactly do you do? Because it's very <laughs> esoteric, you know, yeah, right. uh, there's not that many people who do what I do out there. Right. I mean, it's really coming on board, but it's hard to find people who do what I do. Right. Um, a lot of centers will use a technician based, you know, cause they work pretty well. They just don't, you know, it's cause they probably have to, cause you're so rare. Yeah, so I want to build a training program to make more people like me, you know, so, so, um, but what do they ask me? Um, Well, most people ask me about mapping things that you just can't map, you know, that I don't map, right? right? Um, So, so usually it's some sort of mapping, mapping uh, issue of like, can you map that? Or, or they'll say something like, well, we know that that works, and I'll just roll my eyes because it's not true. And, you know, it's just once you start doing this for a living and you've seen patients and you've seen their brain and everything, you realize that a lot of things that are in pop psychology, that's the thing. They always ask uh. me pop psychology. Well, you know, I'm a right brain person, and I'm right. like, I'm pretty sure you're using both sides of your brain. So. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I mean, I guess along those same lines that we've been asked some questions by some of our, some of our coworkers to ask you and some yes. of them were like, oh, okay. yes. like, for like, as far as can you map that? Well, can you, can you do lie detection? Oh, uh, research says you can do lie detection. You have to use machine learning. I personally, oh, all right. So I personally choose not to do some research and don't do things like, so I personally am a clinical neuropsychologist clinician. So right. I'm most interested in uh, translational research that can help patient populations or other populations. So I have one of the largest, um, I started it and my old postdoc took it over. So I have one of the largest studies of older adults with autism to try to understand better what their needs are as they get older. Oh, that's interesting. So lie detection, people do study it. Um, Actually, you know, I saw on your list of things, like what would you be if you weren't a neuropsychologist? Yeah. Yeah. I probably would be a behavioral neurologist or a, a behavioral um, uh, economist. Oh, because <laughs> that something coming. that's super no. interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it goes back to your lie detection. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because something that's really fascinating to me is what people will st- spend money on and what they won't. Because we're all oh. super quirky. Can you guys think You're of anything so like? Right. Like, like you'll have no problem dropping seventy thousand dollars on a on a car, but right. like you I think know, we have a different budget you, than you. You won't <laughs> buy a br- brush or something, right, you know. No, right. no, these are people. Yeah, For definitely. me, it's I notice that, um, like, I won't 
like I'll think because things that I bought for years and years and years in my mind, they don't go up in price. So I was just noticing like a, a bottle of ketchup to me is like a buck. And, and if it's more than a dollar, I'm like, this is too expensive. I don't want to buy it. But a bottle of uh, shampoo, I'll spend $25 on and I, I don't even bat an eye. Right. Like because. I like shampoo, Makes and, it, too, and, and <laughs> I can notice the difference. But ketchup, no, it's not worth anything. Yeah, so I think behavioral economy is really interesting. And lie detection, those those people love those kinds of tasks, like lie mm. detection. Because, you know, uh, what people use it for is marketing purposes. And oh, that's the understand. whole thing where they use – they try to figure out, like, um, your interests. And um, so lie detection – so the way you do you, way you do studies for that is you do extremely long tasks that have all these different items, and then you pool the items together and you try to figure out if you can, um, you know, if somebody is um, like you know what parts of the brain. What it is is it's this P three hundred signal. Like you can do it with EEG too. There are certain parts of the brain that'll like that are associated with attention that'll just be like, bah! you know, if you if you tell a lie, right, right, like, like yeah. if you internal, think more about yeah, that lie than you would if you tell the truth type of thing. Yeah. Do you know? Oh. Do you know a little factoid? Um, um, I know I have lots of them, but um, <laughs> like uh, police officers will make um, people tell the, their story backwards. And the reason is because oh. if they're lying, they won't be able to do it because they don't have an image of what really happened. They have a story that they learned and they learned it forward, not backward. Oh. So they can't, they can't, they, I mean, they use that pick on my up. Kids. Yeah, they pick up. <laughs> so that's how you pass they a lot of lies. Tests, Right. <laughs> so like, it's really hard to tell, like, it's like your brain doesn't doesn't really process a lie as easily as it processes the truth right. and it activates like certain attentional systems that that you're needing for control like when you tell a lie so so but it takes a huge amount of data to do that kind of machine processing right. for the data so um I don't do any of that. And also, I'm a clinician who's really interested in what I'm interested in, right. which is pre-surgical mapping. So I just don't get into all that. Because then you get into forensics and things like that, which I don't, I'm not interested in. Right. Well, we're probably going to fall or cover a couple more things. <laughs> well, another question somebody asked me as far as can you map it is, I imagine you can see emotion, right? Yes. Um, and the different parts that take up that, but... Along those same lines, can you determine whether somebody lacks that? Therefore, like defining them as like a psychopath. Okay, or... so so oh, that's the diagnostic thing that people do. So there is one researcher who looks at um, um, antisocial personality disorders, and he works a lot in that. And like I said, so so if you think about what we're doing, mm -hmm. lack of signal doesn't tell you a lot, right? right. So. Um, I'm going to circle this back and talk about my data a little bit. The reason why I don't have a really great memory task is because it doesn't always light up in both hemispheres in all people. And oh. think about that. So if you're missing it, and if somebody says, ah, I use my left more than my right, so I'm not going to light up my right just because that's their individual difference on this particular task, that is... I can't use that, right? Because right. I can't, lack of signal is because the person didn't do it. They didn't pay attention. Like, it doesn't tell you anything. It's not clear. Like, I can't, like the neurosurgeon, like, I need to know that the person did the task. So sometimes I don't send my data to the 
um, the doctor because I'll say this person failed, you know, and I don't know why they failed, but they didn't light up their brain well enough to pass muster for me. So you, so functional MRI, you have to see signal, right? right? For you to make any kind of decisions about what it is. So lack of signal in functional MRI is very nebulous mm. area, right? right? So, so I actually did map emotion. I have a task that maps emotion. It's really pretty cool, and I published some papers on it because at one time they people wanted to do. Um, they still kind of do it in a research mode, but we were kind of. Um, as a field interested in transitioning into functional neurosurgery on patients with depression by putting a deep brain stimulator in this one part of the brain. So I was asked um, by that same neurosurgeon who only uses three words, can you map (laughs) area 25, which is the area that people wanted to target. And so I created a task that I, in individuals, I could map it. And it moved around a little bit, probably enough to make the deep brain stimulators not that successful because oh. they targeted one place and they weren't quite hitting exactly the same place. They right. were using an- the anatomy yeah. and not functional. Right. Um, so, so, so to get to make a long story longer, you can map emotion, <laughs> but um, depending on your battery of tests, you would never know that a lack of signal is really due to a lack of emotion okay okay um and this one's kind of a fun one for me it's actually something i've thought about for a while so with functional mri in my mind in theory you like you said earlier actually you could read people's minds but i'm thinking how you can do actually use that one scenario that i came up with is you'd almost have to know in advance but what if you map somebody's brain completely um and then months later they're now in a coma and they're in this coma for months. While they're in this coma, could you do an MRI of them, see what parts of their brains are activating, and in theory, tell um, what they're thinking about in right. their coma? Oh, like, well, you, could, you could see their emotions. You could see if they're happy or well, sad. Well, um, that's really interesting. Well, theoretically, yes. Yeah. Like that, theoretically, but, you know, that is a huge theory, right? Because right. that would mean that everybody would get their brain map for everything. Right. And mm-hmm. that we get to the point where we can actually map everything in the brain. Probably closer to that, what we would do is um, we would, pro- you know, like we don't, uh, what you're kind of saying is sort of that big picture. Like, will we at some point get all of everybody's genetic sequences will all be mapped? You know what I mean? Right. Like, will we map people out completely? I think the standard of healthcare is not there that we're going to go that length of time. Yeah. But, but theoretically, uh, functional MRI, um, I think that functional MRI is a very useful technique. I'm hoping that there's going to be something even better out there to map the brain. Right. Cause like, you know, as you can see, there's a bunch of different ways to map the brain, but theoretically in some sense, we could map the brain and then we could predict based on, like lack of function later on what was missing i mean that's what google's doing all the time right, right. like uh, uh, that's machine learning so so learning. so machine learning is changing a lot of ways of of brain mapping etc because basically people get these huge data sets and then based on those data sets they try to predict what's going on in right. a new data set a test data set 
And so you theoretically could do that. So you could use the pre-data set to predict what's missing from the post-data set. Mm. And you wouldn't really have to like go through my task-based stuff to do that. You know, there's this other kind of functional MRI that we do all the time is called resting state. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So resting state is theoretically you're in some sort of state where you're not doing anything like I asked them to do. And then we we decide um, we know certain um, networks in the brain, neural networks in the brain. And then we um, we can analyze the data and figure out where those neural networks are. And mm. I do that kind of research. Like I published on on resting or well, using that approach right. to look at neural networks. And I hope actually my not too distant future that I'm gonna use a neural network approach on what I'm doing right now to just increase the robustness of my data. Oh nice. But yeah. But basically, theoretically, you could definitely do that. And you know that people are mapping people's brains while they're in comas. You can look up that literature and um, they'll give them what they do is it's the flip side of what you're talking about is they'll give them something to think about. I think they did. Um, there's a I, I forget where the group is. It's somewhere out east, either in Canada, like MNI or somewhere out east um, where they would talk about like tennis to, to the person, like uh, either do something related, like read something about tennis, like tell them something about tennis, and then they can see activation in like motor parts of the brain. So the people are actually very aware well, of their surroundings. Well, it's very controversial right now, but people are trying both that and with CT scans, because one of the neurosurgeons I worked with worked on CT scans to try to better understand what true brain dead what right. what truly consciousness is? I have a theory that people are more dead. so than we give them credit for. Like if I have a patient that comes down and they're non-responsive, I still talk to them. I say, hey, I'm going to move this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's oh, really that's a good point. well. You know, I think that's nice. I I actually, you know, I think kindness to patients who are going through this is really hard to maintain when you see patients day in and day out. Mm -hmm. But it's always a nice thing to remember that. Whoever's coming in, this is a terrifying thing for them. Right. I mean, maybe if they've got like an ankle injury, it's not. But especially the brain tumor patients and the brain patients, like they're going to go through surgery. Like that is like we can't relate, you right. know. And I actually tell them like I can't relate. Sometimes I talk to them just so that they understand that, you know, I'm taking this seriously. I understand what they're going through and I'm going to try to get them through it the best so I think that's wonderful that you talk to people who, you know, what's worse is when people start making, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of right. controversy of people thinking that people are under anesthesia and talking about them in front of them. And the person wakes up and said, I heard everything you said. Yeah. So kindness to patients is always a good, you know. Right. And just you made me think of a funny story. I remember I read in the newspaper, I don't know. Actually, who reads the newspaper anymore? <laughs> I read online. Uh, some lady actually had like a tape recorder or something recorded. Oh, yeah, yeah. While she was oh, yeah, anesthesia. no, you can get in, oh, you know. Wow. And then I all mean, the nurses were talking about her. And one would hope that we don't have to be, you know, worried about lawsuits and stuff and that we just be kind to people. But there's burnout, you know. I mean, after a while, if you're doing the same thing all the time, yeah. you can burn out. But it's always good to remember, you know, like human beings are, right. you know. Well, and that kind of brings me to a question that I had. Um, I guess even when you're under anesthesia, sometimes you can have uh, some sense of consciousness, right? 
What oh. is highlighting All in right. your so brain? So I have a that? very nerdy husband who's just as nerdy as me, and <laughs> I shouldn't really admit this, but yesterday we spent a good chunk of the time talking about memory functioning because, of right. course, I'm really trying to build this memory task. So, mm-hmm. so we were talking about this. Oh, we talked about this. So, so memory has a time component, and so because he had just seen this lecture about. Um, 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 there's a famous Nobel Prize person who who was who showed place cells in the brain and grid cells in the brain oh. in the in in the hippocampus. And we always go back to the hippocampus, right. right? So like it was remembering, you know, like you were learning things based on where things were spatially. Right. Well, I I that's very important, lit, you know, literature. But of course, in humans, it's all conversations, verbal, verbal, language, language, language. You know, oh. so. That's where I live. So so it's very hard for me to kind of wrap my brain around just looking at spatial. And these people work on rats who have no language, right? right? So all they have is navigation, right. right? So we're going back and forth. But we brought up the – but the new thing that people are finding is the, the component of time. Oh. And so it's true. So think about if you undergo anesthesia um, – you wake up and you have, you know, oh, it no, could be like a blink. Or... You're just like they just put me to sleep, right? 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 Because I, I um, there's subcortical and hippocampal uh, mechanisms that are just completely turned off, oh. and so you're not tracking time. Because when you wake up from a nap, right, you know that time traveled because your brain is still active, your hippocampus is still active. Your hippocampus is a very, very active part of the brain, which makes it hard to do functional MRI, right? Right. And because you're looking at these tiny little changes in brain activity from condition A to condition B, right? Mm-hmm. So the hippocampus is so active all the time, it's hard to get these to slight that, changes right? yeah. in brain functioning. You know, your hippocampus has been working all the time. It works at night to consolidate your memories. You know, that's, you know, part of dreaming and all of that. Mm-hmm. So to get back to your question... You know, um, the hippocampus is tracking time, so so it's probably, along with other parts of the brain, it's probably put it to sleep, sleep. enough that when you're, but we don't know about comas. Oh, right. I, I think drug-induced comas are going to be different. Oh, then. right. And you know, the, the the type of medication that you're on, I think, varies too, because you know, people on Versed can correspond with you and follow directions, even though they will not remember Remember a thing. Right. Yeah. Some do, you know, but most don't. So interesting. So the, so exactly how you're drugging out your brain, I think varies from person to person, but also it's not hitting all parts of the brain the same way. Right. I'm not an expert on anesthesia. So, <laughs> no, that was a perfect answer. That was good. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. We yes. appreciate it. Um, one question we do like to ask all of our guests. You've probably seen in the packet. We want to prepare you a little bit, but uh, what would you say has been the most satisfying or memorable moment in your healthcare career? Um, when you figure out this memory test. Well, no, <laughs> I think it's this patient I had. Um, you know, it's the patient. It's always about the patients, yeah, right? right? But I had, I did, uh, brain. I I had this younger girl. She was like in high school and just silent, silent. And I mapped her brain with functional MRI, and then I did a wake mapping with her. 
And, you know, awake mapping is very scary, right? You right. wake up and you have to stay still and you're, somebody's doing brain surgery on you. And so I'm there and I feel like it's back to what we get, you know, you said about being nice to the, you know, there I'm mapping the brain, but I'm really, my goal is to be just as nice to the patient as possible and mm -hmm. get them through this really what must be very difficult situation. So anyway, a day or two later, I get this um, call from, um, they're trying to track me down and the mother wants to talk to me and I'm like a little panicky right because like usually I don't I don't I don't have to round or anything with these patients I'm a consult mm -hmm. a consultant to the neurosurgeon so I just happened to be going past the neurosurgery um, offices and I popped into the neurosurgeon I'm like did so-and-so have any problems like you know and he's like no I don't know any problems so I went up to the the room and the mother's like oh thank you Dr. Baxter for coming because all she's been able to say since she came out of surgery is Baxter. I want Baxter, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, really? And so I went up That's and so I just, funny. I was just really. And so I talked to him for a little while and everything. I think it was like the day after surgery, and I talked to him for a little while and just tried to say some, you know, clinical things of like, you know, what it'll be like to get better and how she's feeling and stuff. And then I walk away. And she was quiet the whole time. So she's your typical adolescence. Like she barely, it was so shocking to know that I had made a, 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 such an impression on yeah. her because she didn't really talk to me all that much, just like yeah. a teenager doesn't. Right. But clearly she had, like I had been, I think, comforting to her. Yeah. And then when they came back for like a visit later just to check up, um, they called me back over there and, they, and she had a present. And so on my, on my desk, I have this. This little, um, you know, framed thing that says you, it says something like you are the best, most perfect, you know, one, most awesome, wonderful person ever. And I keep that up there. Uh -huh. So I remember it's all about the patients. Uh -huh. It's all about nice. the patients. It's all about the patients. And you don't even know you're doing something positive and you are. <laughs> so I would have to say that's probably the thing that keeps me going and reminds me of like what my day job really is. That's is to amazing. help patients. I think wow. that's a great. Right. transition out i think you're doing a lot of positive for the patients so oh, thank for you sure. for that well, thanks for sure. um and nice thank you for joining you. us reggie do you have anything to say um actually we had a similar conversation where we were you know thinking of a guest and i was like i want baxter <laughs> i want That's baxter true, yeah. <laughs> it is true it's been fun to be here no we're so, so you definitely wanted yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you're definitely appreciated so thank you thank you yes, um and thank, thank you. you for watching we're zone three podcast we have a website, zone3podcast.com. Yes. We have a store there. We ask you to do all the things that YouTubers ask. Yes. Hit subscribe, hit oh, like. Thank you for all our subscribers out there already. Yeah, we're trying to get to 1,000. We're pretty close. We so. appreciate the love. Thank you, guys. Thank you, you guys. Zone3podcast. Thank you, Dr. Baxter. We're out.